Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, or evening, depending on your time zone. Uh, we'll start with a few minutes of sitting and let other people uh, join in who might be coming in just a little bit late. So we'll, we'll sit for about uh, three minutes. So, <clears throat> welcome everybody. Um, I am happy to see you. And I hope you have been thinking about these uh, models of cause and effect that we, uh, that we have adopted, let's say. Um, and today I wanna to talk a little bit more about that background. So we understand a little bit better where some of our beliefs about cause and effect have come from, they actually have an origin story. So last week we began to investigate our implicit and explicit models of cause and effect. But before we talk about the sort of the evolution of cultural and philosophical models of cause and effect, we should consider the embodied experiential development of what has been called the scientist in the crib. So this um, takes us into the sort of the inquiry into the personal development of cause and effect models in individuals. So from the moment we're born into a blindingly bright, uh, loud, rough textured and chaotic world, we struggle to discover the laws of a, a cause and effect. So our methods at that point are simple bodily movements and senses of an infant. What happens when I smile at a big person? What happens when I flail my arms and legs? What happens when I cry and when I poop? What is different when I'm alone and when a big person is there? So we conduct thousands of experiments every day as babies, toddlers, and children. These experiments and our interpretations of their results provide the primitive causal models that form the basis of our reality, including hundreds of propositions, such as, if I make a funny face, they are not angry anymore some of the time. I can sometimes tell a lie and nothing bad happens. If someone is in a bad mood, hide in your room until it is over. What happens if I get hurt or sick? Oh, I see. <clears throat> what happens if I get very mad or very sad? What happens if others get mad or sad? The big people or my friends? What happens if I make a mistake or break a rule? And how can I find out what the rules are anyway? What do I have to do to get what I need and to be taken care of? What do I need to do to get love and approval from others? 
Who or what can I trust? Who or what do I resist? So all of these kinds of questions automatically arise for us in any new situation, including our spiritual practice and community. We're unsettled until we decide the answers to them for ourselves. So I thought we might do a little bit of um, actual investigation um, together about this, and you need something to write with um, for some personal writing, and then you, you'll be able to decide whether or how much of this writing you'll want to share later. So I'll tell you in advance, there are four parts to what uh, this little activity involves. So people have some writing implements and paper. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> the first part. And I want you to take a couple of minutes to reflect about this before you write anything. So we're not in a big hurry. Don't feel like you have to rush into it. You're gonna to need to think about this for a little bit. List three cause and effect relationships you observed before the age of seven. Three cause and effect relationships you observed before the age of seven. You could express them as if then statements. You want to be as specific as possible. So these are observations, not interpretations. So, for example, I help set the table and mom praise me. This is the first part. Three cause and effect relationships you observe before the age of seven. And take a couple of minutes to reflect. There's no big rush on this. Part two, <clears throat> the general rule you developed for yourself for each of your observations. For example, in my example, if I help, others will approve of me. The general rule you developed for yourself for each of your observations. For example, if I help, others will approve of me. Three, the expectations of others, each rule created in me. So for example, people should help out. I approve when they do. And people should notice and approve of me when I help. They should appreciate what I do, or at least that I'm trying to help. So what are the expectations of others that each rule created in me? For the fourth part, consider the problems and dangers in my rules. For example, my expectations for myself and others are sometimes problematic in certain ways. 
the problems or dangers in my rules. So Kim, um, we want to have some breakout rooms. I think we want groups of four for about 25 minutes and um, leave me out of it. So I think the way they've done that in the past is to just create one extra room and put me in it. 25 minutes, four people, and just just to discuss what you discovered, you don't have to reveal anything about specific details of what you wrote, but what you discovered about your models and how they shape your expectations of the world and other people and what kinds of issues that might present for you. So if anyone would like to uh, report out what, uh, uh, what they noticed or what they observed um, or what they discovered, um, you can, there's a little button in the lower right hand corner of the window that uh, says reactions. If you click on that, you can raise your hand. So, um, so let's see if uh, there are some things that you'd like to share in an event this, uh, ex from this experience. Or did you learn anything? We had a really interesting group. Um, and I think that I learned a lot from writing and exploring my own stuff, but being in the group, it, um, it, it helped, it really, really was rich to hear about other people's formative experiences. And, you know, some were similar, but some were quite different. And it really gave more, uh, gave me a bodily sense that, oh, what, what I've come to believe from my observations is really a result of my experience, my, my, you know, own experience. And, and how different it can be too, and how it really is. Um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's not, it's not me and it's not them, that it's all part of how we form this thing over the, over the, over our development, the course of our development. That's such so, a good observation because um, yeah, two people can have fundamentally the same observation and have a different interpretation 
for what it means for them, even as infants. Um, so because we come in with certain personality tendencies, an appetite for risk versus an appetite for stability. Um, you know, there are lots of tendencies that we come in with that influence the interpretation we make of what we've observed, right? So that's what's so interesting, I think, about hearing these, um, these experiences. Yeah, Kim. This was a great exercise for me as I've been thinking about uh, self and no self to realize how uh, this self was created by these experiences mm -hmm. and how, so now I have to go. And so what was the self before this, this creation? Uh, but how uh, stupid I was to, or stupid I am now to look, look back and, and realize that this, thing that I've been holding on to so tightly was constructed with this poor information and based yeah. on these other people. Yeah, well, based on an infant's interpretation or a small child's interpretation, a very limited horizon of experience and knowledge, right? And even parts of the brain not even developed yet, the parts that do reasoning and have judgment. So yeah, so it's it's very interesting. I think first of all, I think we imagine that it's a given that these things, our models of cause and effect, are the way the world is, the way reality is, rather than something that we've had to construct in order to manage the sort of chaotic set of impulses and experiences we have. Yeah, so it's not that they're wrong, obviously. Um, but we'll, you know, we'll discover that they're uh, partial and incomplete, I would say. And sometimes um, they're sort of misapplied. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Joan. Okay. I have a lot of things about my childhood. A lot of them have been told to me later on. Instead, I've tried to take that and figure out if I could figure out what was going on at that time. <laughs> so uh, I knew there was dissension between my parents and uh, they kept it pretty well hidden. And I was the oldest. So I was the one who kind of kept them together in the beginning. They just thought I was darling, you know, but it, it got to be too much for them as time went on. I just don't know what I could say I had as a reality when I was little, other than what I'd been told you know, and trying to piece it together. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is why, you know, it depends on, and this is why I sort of wanted people to access even a fragment of a memory where they observed something and they made a general rule out of it, you know, or um, a principle or something out of it. And so sometimes it's just a tiniest thing and it gives us a clue. It's not the total picture because we had, of course, lots of other experiences and we shaped our understanding based on all those experiences. But sometimes we get a little window into the way and the fact that they're constructed. You know, the fact that at some point we built that model of cause and effect and we worked on that. And, you know, much later, I think we came to see uh, that it, it somehow didn't work all the time, that it was problematic sometimes even. But 
for most of us, that was just our understanding of the way the world worked. And so if there were these anomalies, things that didn't work the way we expected them to, then it was problematic, but it didn't ever really threaten the cause and effect model we're holding on to. Yeah. That's great, yeah. Well, I could look back at it and I can't tell what came at the, you know, at the early time, but I had a role to be sort of the one who entertained the people and made them happy. That's right. So that was, that was one of the things you internalize. I can make people happy. And here's how I do it. Here's my method, right? They had a method. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then that sets up certain expectations for yourself and for other people. Like what happens when you can't make them happy? And also as a, an adult, I see that I don't think I pay attention to inside of me. I'm looking at what's going on around me. That's right. That's right. As a child would do, you know, just trying to make sense of their world. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So Maria? Hi. Yeah, I think um, I learned very early on to um, keep everything in and to not share anything upsetting, to be happy, to be okay to be the fixer, the helper, and that kind of thing. And I think what's interesting for me, what I've been learning over the last year or two through the pandemic and being part of Appamada is, is um, being able to create enough gap to sort of look at cause and effect. Because I think you really need to sit to really spend time with everything that's, that's going on. I think that's what, that's what this, the blessing from this pandemic, I think, even though it's been awful, has, has given me. And that kind of, um, it can be easy to think, somebody said something and it hurts me so it's their fault and i think what i'm learning is is because as that gap's getting there it's like just because it's obvious that they've said something hurtful doesn't mean it's their fault that i'm hurting that there's all these beliefs and ideas within me that i've not even registered until i've been sitting that have just been subconsciously going on and that being able to kind of really sit with them and, and create a space i can really begin to see that my part in that, you know, that all blames into one, that, you know, the whole situation, I'm, I'm a part of this and my reactions, my triggers, what's causing all of that is part of it, not just because someone's obviously not being nice. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't have to necessarily mean that I'm going to be hurt. It's right. all my conditioning and beliefs and ideas that are creating my response, the impact on me, not just their fault and that's something I found really helpful and really wonderful to kind of begin to unravel and see. It's so true and then you begin to see oh it's their bundle of conditioning it's their bundle of their past history the their models of the world that they're projecting out of um, that are creating the way they are and the way they're being um, and so I, so you start to get really interested in what would have to happen for someone to have that motive or to express themselves in that way. I call this the anthropological view because it's like when you get dropped into a, another culture as an anthropologist and you have to figure out, people are doing all kinds of outlandish things. You have to think to yourself, now what would they have to believe for that to make perfect sense here, right? So. 
So it's kind of interesting when you apply that in everyday life, you know, what would a person have to believe for what they're doing to make perfect sense? And that um, automatically creates a little gap between what they're projecting and what your experience is, because you have this sort of um, curiosity that's a friendly curiosity, like what would have had to have happened to this person? You know, you see a person who's being very cruel, it's automatically gets your back up and you start to get angry, you know? But you have to understand what happened. Babies aren't born cruel. What happened to this person? And out of that curiosity, you get a little space. Yeah, it's just exactly what you're doing, this investigation. But as you pointed out, and I think this is true, we have to get still enough and silent enough and reduce the distractions enough to be able to create that space. Yeah. That's great. That's a great observation. And, you know, it should be helpful to people like you feel hurt. Um, that's your responsibility. The other person's responsible for their speech and their actions and their thoughts. And it doesn't mean that you should never get hurt, but it means you should recognize, oh, this is in me. And what got touched there? What part of me got, uh, you know, uh, took that on as something that belongs to me? Yeah. And I think that coins it don't be predictable is really helpful in, in kind of stopping, pausing, and, and it helps you notice what is predictable about what am I doing that's predictable. And then you really start to begin to see the patterns and what, what you're doing that's automatic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So this is great. It's very helpful um, sharing these things, I think, and hearing other, the way other people are making sense of their experience. Um, yeah, this is part of what I think helps us not take our own personal experience quite so seriously. Yeah, it's good to see you, Maria. Yeah, you too. <laughs> so Joel, I think you have your hand up. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Uh, well, I was in a group with Paul and Claudine, and each of us started with um, what I think of as, as uh, memories about expectations and roles that led us to uh, isolating, to being isolated and, mm -hmm. and in some ways self-reliant, mm -hmm. but in other ways, simply withdrawing and, and mm -hmm. uh, not wanting to be willing to risk connecting with other people. But Paul pointed out as we were talking that we were we were seeing commonalities right away from, mm -hmm. from from the things that we shared, and that 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 you know, and, and as I expressed it, that that brought up feelings of compassion right away. That that in sharing the things that we had constructed. In, in, in realizing what we had constructed and and our and these kind of habitual reactions that we so seldom, at least for myself, that I so seldom uh, have articulated in this way, that we we were we were connected right away, and we felt it. Mm. That's so interesting, isn't it? <laughs> 
that, that bond. Yeah. Well, okay, I wanna share a few other things with you before we um, come to the end of our time. Uh, because, you know, we're sort of looking at these models, they, they, they also we have, you know, collective sort of social models, and they have a history also. So, although we tend to depend on our primitive causal models and the methods we developed in childhood to answer our existential questions, uh, those naive models we begin to recognize are inadequate for the complex adult world we inhabit now. They're not necessarily wrong. But we can see how limited and incomplete they are when we become quiet and still enough to truly observe our own experience and the world we're both enmeshed in and co-creating with others. So from my point of view, uh, my perspective, um, we, we really cannot continue to thrive personally and collectively following primitive self-centered models of cause and effect. We need to evolve together a more accurate understanding of cause and effect in order to envision and create a livable future. If the linear model of cause and effect actually worked, there would never be any unintended consequences. These alone are evidence of complex causes and effects. So this shift requires thinking in terms of complex adaptive systems which includes individuals, groups, societies, and whole species. If we don't get this, we will perish as a species, along with much of the living world. And it will be millions of years before intelligent beings evolve out of the wreckage of it. So our comprehension of cause and effect is important. In the Buddha's teaching from 2,500 years ago, in complex system science, Uh, in our threatened biosphere and in our ordinary daily lives. We have to stop the harm we are doing. We have to create new possibilities for the future that are in accord with life and help people transform their consciousness so that they can help build a wiser, more compassionate and warmly connected world. And this depends on aligning our shared model of cause and effect with life as it is. But first, Beyond the causal experiments and cause and effect we developed in childhood, dropping the same spoon off the high chair for a few thousand trials, for example, where did society's models of causal relationships come from? So in her book, Mutual Causality in Buddhism and General Systems Theory, Joanna Macy gives an overview and she starts with one-way causality in the West, which goes back to uh, uh, Heraclitus versus Parmenides. So this is the late sixth to early fifth century BC, which is roughly contemporary with the Buddha. So this was a kind of a conversation that understanding is that these two philosophers, early Greek philosophers were, re, were actually um, responding to each other. Um, hard to tell which one came first and which one was the reaction, but um, Heraclitus was, uh, uh, his view was a dynamic view of reality as an ever-changing river. Everything flows, all is in process, arising and passing, yielding novelty. And he was the one who coined this saying, you can't step into the same river twice. So Parmenides uh, says uh, the opposite. So we only know uh, his philosophy from a single poem fragment. 
which is considered the first sustained argument in Western philosophy. He considers two positions in this uh, argument. First, the way of truth. And the way of truth is all reality is one, change is impossible, existence is timeless, uniform, and necessary. That's the first, first way, first position. The second position, the way of opinion, the world of appearances. Our sensory faculties lead to conceptions which are false and deceitful. So needless to say, the way of the truth is the one that he's, uh, that he's backing. So his sayings are whatever is, is, and what is not, cannot be. And out of nothing, nothing comes. He argues that this expression, A is not A, could never be said or even thought truthfully. This is the argument of eternalism that the Buddha opposes. It is a logic of things rather than process. So unfortunately for Western philosophy, his view was the view that prevailed with Plato and Aristotle and the philosophers they influenced. In essence, they were talking about objects. It's a sort of object-oriented philosophy. So although Aristotle, when he came along, gave a little more credibility to the empirical world of experience, he allowed the reality of change, but still assumed that stability or permanence was primary. So something had to happen. Some external agent had to cause change. Everything must be moved by something else for matter itself is passive and inert. So as Macy says, Aristotle created four categories of causation or change, and this profoundly shaped categories of the Western thought that followed. So I'm gonna put this up so you can see, um, see it in person. Um, okay, where is it? Um, here. Uh, nope, that's not the right thing. Okay, where are we? Okay, that's not the thing I'm looking for. Stop the sharing. Let me share the, see if I can get this up here. Uh, okay, are you seeing this? Um, Aristotle's categories for the causes of the phenomena. Okay. <clears throat> so, so Aristotle's categories, this is the causes of phenomena, the material cause, that is the stuff something is made out of, the clay of a pot, the formal cause, which is the form a thing takes, uh, the shape of the pot, and the efficient cause, something acting externally upon it as the potter to the clay, and the final cause, the thing's purpose or the goal the potter had in mind. So of these four causes, I'm gonna leave this up while I talk a little bit about this. The first two, material and formal, are motionless and incapable of change. Only the efficient cause moves. The fourth acts only by attraction and without itself moving. So if change occurs, it has to be pushed into existence by the efficient cause or pulled into being by the final cause. On both their parts, that action is unilateral and unidirectional. So Aristotle's logic took him to the same place of there has to be some unmoved mover at the beginning. And so he comes to an argument for the existence of a god or gods that are the unmoved movers. This, um, this actually influences all of the rest of Western philosophy. So what I wanna do is talk a little bit about this. Um, 
and I want to read you what Joanna Macy wrote about this. It's just a couple of pages because I think she's really clear about how the sort of the sequence of how this entered into our contemporary consciousness about causality. So, uh, so Aristotle's God was a God whose unidirectionality of influence is so thorough and uncompromised that he's subject to no external action. This God cannot respond to lesser beings or even have a thought outside the divine self. This is the unmoved mover that is at the start of everything. And she says, in the third century, Hellenistic philosopher Plotinus took one-way causality and cast it in imagery that strongly stamped subsequent thought. In seeking to understand the one toward which his soul and intellect yearned, this Neoplatonic mystic borrowed the image of the sun. So his, this was his metaphor, was the sun, which he saw shedding its effulgence without being affected in return. So this is the unmoved mover, the god at the start of everything. Plotinus viewed creation as a kind of overflow of the one and all things as emanations of this eternally perfect, unmoved and sun-like one. As being radiates out from the one, like light from a light bulb, its power naturally and gradually lessens with distance and entities become progressively multiple and impure, less conscious, less real and less valuable. In this manner, what is, et what is eternally perfect produces something inferior to itself without its own power and radiance being in any way lessened. The Neoplatonic postulation of one single unaffected source of being, this is the godlike figure, along with its persuasive imagery of light entered Christian theology through Augustine and others and firmly anchored one-way causality in the Western mind. This is how we came to have this, this idea. So a millennium later, this is a thousand years later, the monumental work of Thomas Aquinas carried forward the one-way notion of causality and in explicitly Christian terms. Thomas used the logical necessity of the unmoved mover as proof of God's existence. Continuing to assume a one-way causal flow, he argued that God was necessary to avoid the only other and untenable alternative, infinite regress. In this fashion, the Hebrew God who interacted with his chosen people, scolding and making covenants with them, as well as the God of the New Testament who entered the world to suffer in human flesh, took on the Greek mantle of static perfection. From this fusion derives God's awesome features of omnipotence, immutability, and impassibility, for by logical necessity, God is incapable of being affected by his creation. Though considered to be all-powerful, he is yet unable to change and is above all emotion or response. This is going to turn out to be incredibly important in our, um, our understanding of feelings and thought. So Mary and the saints filled the gap between divine aloofness and human need. They were moved by the prayers of the faithful and interceded on their behalf. But when the Protestant reformers evicted these mediators, their followers were left with an absolute unmoved mover. His omnipotence and omniscience made the doctrine of predestination reasonable and even believable. To be aloof from the actions of others and unaffected by them became a sign of one's moral strength. 
we still have this view today and shot through society in many, many ways. So as Shakespeare wrote, who moving others are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband nature's riches from expense. So I think this is also the source of our Western view of uh, sort of the pinnacle of meditation is some to be some stoic individual who is unemotional and never touched by anything. And I think it comes directly out of this tradition uh, where this is a belief of what the spiritual life is, is like. So Descartes' rationalism did not mitigate this one-way causality. In the radically dualistic move that separated mind from matter into two discontinuous realms, he accorded all efficacy to his idea of God, infinite, eternal, immutable, independent, all-powerful, and by which I myself and everything else, if anything else does exist, have been created. God's unilateral power extends to the very concepts the thinker can make about him. That is, as Descartes explained, he can derive the idea of himself from the idea of God, but not the idea of God from the idea of himself. So this is this one-way linear causal chain, right? And um, embedded it even in this rationalist argument. Therefore, he concluded, the source of the idea of God must be God himself. By virtue of the Cartesian separation of mind from matter, the aloofness of this God now becomes emulated and mirrored in the aloofness of the human mind from the phenomenal world. This is the origin of our separation from nature and our inflicting violent destruction on it. Categorically distinct from this world of contingency and matter, mind can now imagine itself acting upon the world in a similarly impassive and unidirectional fashion. I have a, just a few more minutes if you want to stay with me. If you have to leave, that's okay. I totally understand. But we're about to talk about the rise of modern science. So um, the rise of modern science incorporated the unidirectional causal model, although unmoved movers and ideal forms, as well as Aristotle's formal and final causes were rejected as both unnecessary and unempirical. Only matter and efficient causes remained appropriate to scientific inquiry, and both in their different ways were assumed to have a one-way relation to the conditions they produced. Explanations were sought by reducing phenomena to their basic components, that is to particles, building blocks that could be uncovered by dissection and analysis. Changes in their condition were assumed to derive from an efficient cause or an external agent impinging upon them. With Newton's law of inertia, movement no longer appeared to be a secondary characteristic less real than stability. But the notion persisted that an external force was needed to explain changes in velocity and direction. And this will have uh, huge, huge ramifications in all different areas of human endeavors from psychotherapy to building bridges. <clears throat> Newton's third law of motion, stating that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction, might seem to challenge the unidirectional causal paradigm. But Newton's religious beliefs remained firmly anchored in one-way causality. The God he described is so unilaterally powerful that he need not obey the very laws he created, and so unmovable that he cannot respond to prayers. The logic of the one-way paradigm led to determinism, 
as Pierre Laplace, the French astronomer, demonstrated. For if everything is moved by something else, how could it act otherwise than it does? Novelties, as Parmenides had asserted, is precluded. If we would, could conceivably detect all the external forces at work, then we could predict the movements of every star and every atom, claimed Laplace, and that became sort of a scientific paradigm. In contrast to such a view, and in a radically empiricist move, philosopher David Hume denied causal necessity altogether. Events have no necessary and objective connection, he said, beyond our observation of the way they succeed each other in time. To escape from the determinism implicit in the unilateral causal paradigm, Hume and his father, followers had to reject the objective nature of causality itself and retreat from any claim to know the external world. So this is the, you know, um, random accidentalism. And we're the ones who create a cause and effect relationship by our observation. Um, so even with the later advent of dialectical and process philosophies, unidirectional causal assumptions held sway. Hegel's dialectical progression of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis seemed to allow the new and unprecedented to arise. But what unfolds in this process is the rational principle or idea that is aloof from the random and inert material stuff of the world and shapes it unilaterally. So there's these forces. Alfred North Whitehead's process thought of a century later strove to give scope to creativity and the emergence of novelty. Yet he posited a platonic realm of God and external and eternal objects endowed with a one-way causal connection with the phenomenal world. As systems philosopher Irvin Laszlo pointed out, Whitehead's eternal objects can ingress in actuality and thus qualify its course, but actuality does not affect them. So this means things don't change, right? They're static. And this is the um, way of thinking of things as objects. Process theologian Charles Hartshorn, writing a generation later, made these operative assumptions about causality quite explicit. We shall assume that a cause in the widest meaning of the term is always independent of its particular effect, while this is always dependent on its cause. So this is the absolutist view. Linear causal notions have shaped the scientific method in various and telling ways. An area of research is chosen and circumscribed so that causal chains can be hypothesized and detected. The variables are reduced to those that can be empirically tested and controlled. Seeking the root cause or active ingredient, variables are artificially separated and tested one at a time in disregard or ignorance of their action on each other. As he proceeds, the scientist makes the caveat of all other things being equal. Although that assumption is empirically unverified. So she says, Macy says, this methodology has yielded powerful results. They seemed, at least until recently, to have served the goals of analysis, predictability, and control. But as the tools and inquiries of scientists expand, it is increasingly evident that the universe does not always conform to expectations. You might have noticed that yourself. When events interact and patterns are superimposed on each other, they yield novel, unpredictable, nonlinear results. As Ian Stewart, a mathematician working in chaos theory states, linearity is a trap. The behavior of linear equations like that of choir boys is far from typical. 
But if you decide that only linear equations are worth thinking about, self-censorship sets in. Your textbooks fill with triumphs of linear analysis, its failures buried so deep that the graves go unmarked, and the existence of the graves go unremarked. So that's, uh, that's Macy's way of uh, uh, sort of tracing the history of this linear view of causality that we use uh, almost unconsciously throughout society and individually as well. So, all right, I'll see you next week. I don't want to keep you any longer, but it's been great to share this with you. I'm having fun delving into this material. And, uh, and next week we will talk about the Buddha's time and the kinds of models that he encountered in his own, in his own teaching. Okay, take good care of yourselves this week. <laughs>